Hello and welcome to a very special edition of Energy Voice Out Loud. Reporting from the Subsea Expo 2023 at Press and Journal Live. Today I'm joined by Woods Stuart Turrell. How are you doing today, Stuart? Not too bad, thanks. Not too bad yourself. Oh, not bad, not bad. Day two, excited. You know, first day was really fun and, you know, ready to get my teeth into what's happening today. Uh, you know, have you had a time to look around all the stalls? Yep, no, it's good to see it so well attended. It's good to be here in person as well and actually meet people face to face as well, which, uh, yeah, definitely makes a difference. And um, from yesterday, did you manage to pick up any decent swag or have you got any recommendations for <laughs> good tote bags, coffee cups, pe uh, branded pens and no notebooks? I haven't managed to collect too many goodies as of yet, but um, Wood hosted the reception last night so we've got a few few drinks there oh well i mean that's the best takeaway you can have exactly, is that a yeah, couple of pints of beer after a long show yeah. so to get on topic we're here obviously at the subsea expo so we probably should speak just a little bit about the subsea industry and obviously a massive talking point at the moment is decarbonization how can this industry and the people in this room today help decarbonize the industry? I think it's fundamental to be honest that everyone in this room and the subsea industry in general does help towards decarbonization. Um, and I think really there's kind of two main factors to it, I would say. I think there's the the general decarbonization um, intend, intended projects, the likes of the kind of offshore wind industry, for example, um, electrification of offshore oil and gas assets to decarbonize those, um, projects that are intended to uh, support the wider energy transition. There's also just delivering traditional projects in a more carbon efficient manner um, by operating more efficiently offshore operations um, and by delivering new greenfield facilities in a more carbon efficient manner um, through uh, supply chain efficiencies, through uh, project efficiencies, etc. Um, and I think the subsea industry is integral to that. And what what hurdles can the, will the subsea industry maybe encounter on this journey to decarbonization? I think it's a good question. I think there's um, there's a lot to be said about keeping on top of new technologies that are becoming available um, that can help support that decarbonization, um, understanding and implementing those new technologies, um, as well as obviously um, scheduling cost constraints as well. Um, using electrification as an example, um, the, the longer we take to electrify assets, the closer they get to their um, COP dates, the less business case there is to electrify those assets. So we really need to move at pace um, in order to support the decarbonization and some of the wider um, government targets related to energy transition. And with new technologies, does that create new jobs? And if so, uh, will Aberdeen see an increase in jobs in the subsea sector? I think it's uh, it's twofold. I think the the existing capabilities and competencies of the traditional kind of oil and gas conventional energy um, workforce um, will be able to transition very nicely over into kind of the new energy space and the decarbonisation space. All of those skill sets that have been built up over the last however many decades will be very relevant for, uh, for the new energy space. I think if you look at Scotwind, for example, um, the latest Scotwind licensing round had oil and gas experience at an equal level footing to uh, renewables experience. So I think we are starting to see um, in the renewables industry a recognition of the fact that there is a lot of lessons learned that can be taken from the conventional energy space into those new energies. Um, and I think, yeah, there's, there's new technologies being developed all the time that will uh, need, to be, need to be supported. So that obviously creates new opportunities as well. And is that something that Wood's looking to do? Or is Wood looking to maybe recruit new positions specifically in the Northeast region uh, as you move into these technologies? Yeah, no, certainly. I think um, if you look at Wood's kind of organization at the moment, we've identified two main um, key sort of mega trends, if you like, in de decarbonization and digitalization. Um, those effectively underpin everything we do. 
um, and we're rolling that out across all of our projects um, globally. I think with specific respect to sort of uh, Scotland and subsea industry, um, we have an Energy Transition Academy, um, which we've rolled out internally. Um, it's looking at uh, educating our existing workforce up into kind of the new energies market, um, the renewables market as well, and helping them make that transition over into, into those new energies. Um, and obviously, um, with the number of projects we have globally at the moment, uh, we're always looking to hire new people as well. And not to push you too hard or ask for numbers specifically, but do you have a sort of ballpark figure of maybe how many new jobs will be created as we move forward with decarbonisation? I think um, I think our CEO actually announced um, a couple of days ago that I think there's a thousand new jobs on our sort of external vacancies um, on the on the Wood website at the moment. So I think that's the sort of scale that we're looking at at the moment. Um, obviously, yeah, everyone's very busy. Um, it's a good good time in the industry at the moment. So um, yeah, those those roles need to be filled. Obviously, that's quite a lot of jobs, but. Why should the professionals maybe in this room or in the wider subsea sector be looking at wood to be their next career opportunity? I think if you look at the, um, the breadth and the type of projects that we're running at the moment, um, some of them are um, world leading and cutting edge um, and extremely interesting projects. Um, I think if you look at, for example, some of the electrification projects we're running at the moment, um, we're looking at decarbonising offshore and gas assets, either from power from shore uh, or integrating renewable energy um, from floating or fixed wind. Um, we've recently just completed the, the EPCI brownfield modifications for Highland Tampen um, in the Norwegian sector for Equinor, um, looking at integrating floating wind power into the Snore and Gulf Flats platforms. Um, and we're taking the lessons learned and the learnings there into, uh, into the UK sector and supporting some of the um, major clusters of operators to look at different electrification options. And those are just some of the sort of case studies of projects we're working on at the moment. Um, there's another great example of a, a pipeline design on the moon that we're currently looking at with NASA out in Houston. Um, not satisfied with the pipeline design on, the, uh, on Earth. Um, we've gone slightly further afield. So yeah, so there's some real cutting edge projects happening at the moment. So we can see some wood astronauts in the future. Is that what I'm hearing? I think it would be an interesting, uh, interesting site visit, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. And you know, I, I finish every conversation I have with uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? We've discussed decarbonisation, we've discussed staffing. What's important for wood at the moment? I think it's a good, uh, good question. I think if you look at kind of our two main end markets in terms of energy and materials, um, on the energy side, obviously, you've got kind of the, the energy security versus energy transition piece. Um, and I don't think it's either or. I think those, those go hand in hand. Um, we need to make sure that we decarbonise existing conventional energy operations, as well as transitioning over into the new energies in terms of blue and green hydrogen and decarbonisation, etc. Um, so I think supporting those from the, the decarbonisation and digitalisation perspective um, is really where we're looking moving forwards. Thank you very much, Wood, for joining us. And join us later today as we discuss more things from Subsea Expo 2023. The world is in a race to cut emissions, with a number of governments taking steps to try and secure their industries a more competitive advantage. Bigger, Faster, Better aims to evaluate what progress the UK is making and brings in comparisons from around the world to allow us to think through who is making the most progress and what countries could be doing to do better. In the most recent episode of Bigger, Faster, Better, Energy Voice in association with Womble Bond Dickinson drills into some of the questions around onshore wind. Why is progress so slow in England? Are politics the main Major change are other parts of Europe moving faster? To get some answers to these questions and more, download and listen to the most recent episode of Bigger, Faster, Better. To hear me in conversation with Womble Bond Dickinson partner Chris Tanner and SSE Director for Onshore Renewables Finley McCutcheon. Bigger, Faster, Better on Onshore Wind out now.
We're back at day two of Subsea Expo here at Press and Journal Live, and now I'm joined by Stephen, CEO of ZLX. How are you doing today, Stephen? Oh, I'm doing very well. Uh, and obviously you can see from the exhibition just how well everybody's doing here. The exhibitors have tremendous amount of uh, technology on, on show here. Um, a lot of equipment I've never seen before. It looks as though even during the pandemic, uh, exhibitors have been doing a lot more design and innovation. Um, the footfall's tremendous. Look at the amount of people here today. Yeah, I think this show is, going, is already a success and hopefully we'll continue like that till tomorrow. You, you mentioned design and innovation here and R&D is kind of what you're, you're here to speak about. Um, obviously in November we got the R&D tax relief come through, but for a lot of our viewers we won't necessarily know specifically what that means. Could you round that up for us? Yes, um, for those that were watching the budget, uh, the autumn budget from Jeremy Hunt, um, a lot of people might not have actually understood what was being said. And from an accountancy point of view, the, uh, Jeremy had indicated that he was um, reducing the R&D tax credit claim value for SMEs. Um, he did try and balance that off with increasing the, the amount can be claimed from what we call an Ardec company, Ardec being a large company of over 500 employees. But really, to put it in simple terms, what it really means is that SMEs will lose up to 55% of the, the claim value, the equivalent claim value that they can make today uh, will be 55% less come the April, uh, 1st of April 2013. So um, for, for large companies, there's a, there's a boost but unfortunately for SMEs, which, uh, which we have most of, the, most of the companies here today, are SMEs, so they'll be extremely disappointed, I would think. So just to make it clear, the people that qualify are the, the bigger firms with, was it 500 plus employees? That's correct. Yeah, so a lot of people would argue that um, larger companies could more afford to innovate without these subsidies. Um, so it seems illogical in some respects that the government would target uh, smaller businesses. One of the reasons that they've given for this is the, the level of inaccurate claims that have been made. So this is essentially where companies have, through either themselves submitting a claim or through an agent or, or through an accountant, uh, they've actually submitted inaccurate claims and what HMRC have been doing over the last three years is increasing their amount of um, tax inspectors. So there's now five times more tax inspectors than three years ago. And what that's done is it's highlighted the level of inaccuracies within the SME claim forms. In fact, I think they, they mentioned a figure of 450 million pound of inaccurate claims. So this has been the reason given for uh, taking these steps. However, um, as one of the ministers in the government pointed out uh, quite recently, in fact, this is maybe not the correct step to penalize genuine in uh, innovators, genuine 
uh, companies like we have here today, who are now going to get less than half of what they could claim before because other companies have perhaps not been robust enough in submitting their claims. So it seems that a lot of genuine companies, genuine innovators will suffer through this. And um, just out of interest, for those, those, that small amount of firms that maybe can apply, how, what does that application process look like? Well, actually in terms of the amount of companies that, that, that can apply, um, that spreads across the complete industry, uh, industry sectors. I mean, we, we deal in around 24 different industry sectors where we're making genuine robust claims for our clients. So it, I wouldn't, regardless of the sector that you're in, I, I wouldn't step back or, or avoid inquiring about making the claim. What's more important is that once you've made that inquiry, that when that claim is prepared, and a claim generally consists of a technical narrative and uh, an evaluation of the client's qualifying expenditure on innovative project work. So as long as a client uh, has, regardless of the industry sector, has actually undertook uh, investment in their business in the last two fiscal years, and that investment qualifies under the scheme, then they should make that inquiry to uh, an R&D company like ourselves, or there's many companies like ourselves, who offer technical advice, who offer expert advice in making an R&D tax credit claim. So if, if you do go through this application process and it is successful, what sort of benefits will firms see? Well, um, I'm sure a lot of companies who are already making the claim uh, will understand that essentially what, what an R&D tax credit is doing, it's reimbursing expenditure incurred over the last two years, or the last two fiscal years. So a tremendous for a company that's not made a claim because they've been spending money potentially on, on a, a, an innovative product or an innovative process not quite realising that it was, would qualify under the R&D tax credit scheme. And if they were to make an inquiry today, they would get potentially a large cash injection straight into the business uh, under the scheme, which many companies now almost rely on that on an ongoing yearly basis. They, they understand the scheme, they understand that you make that claim every year as long as they're investing in their business, investing in new products and services uh, and processes that come that qualify under the scheme. So for a lot of companies, they've actually already got that on their budget, on their forecast. They know every year they will, they will be able to make that claim. So if a company's not already making the claim, they should at the very least inquire um, either to themselves or to a similar company like us as to whether or not they could qualify for received an R&D tax credit. And that includes SMEs or large companies which under the scheme are called RDEP companies. And what are the wider implications for this, both for the UK domestically and as a place to invest in from abroad? It's a very good question. I think uh, a lot of companies, particularly SMEs, 
who may have been coming to the UK to invest here, um, may be put off by these new rules because essentially what they were thinking before in terms of the, the percentage uh, that they could claim from a qualifying expenditure on these projects is now half of what they were going to get before. So I would imagine a lot of companies who may have been coming to the UK uh, to invest under a forecast where they would be having this uh, financial return through the government will now be rethinking uh, just exactly where they should invest. And many companies, as you know, on a global scale, um, have, a, have a lot of choices. What, what this scheme has, or these reforms have actually done, um, they've reduced that incentive for companies to come here. It's no doubt going to affect existing companies who are innovating already and whether or not they're going to stay here. Um, so it could have a major implication. I mean, if you compare the UK now in terms of what they can offer SMEs um, across the globe, then we're now at the bottom of the G7 table, or certainly in the bottom half of the G7 table. So if you were a company and you were developing products, you would certainly be starting to say, well, is UK now the place I should be? So some really interesting points you made today, uh, Stephen, is while we've got you on the Energy Voice booth here at uh, Subsea Expo, is there anything else you'd like to say to the Energy Voice readership? Yes, I think um, if you look at uh, the global markets, and I think you need to when you're... I mean, the number one area of subsidy at the moment uh, around the world is the energy transition to green technologies. And what you see now uh, across the globe is companies like America offering $375 billion worth of subsidies to attract investment into the States. Um, you know, and, uh, under the banner of improving uh, climate change and, and reaching net zero, which is all very well, and you know, congratulations to America, but Unfortunately, what that does for the rest of the world, uh, Europe including the UK, is that puts a real challenge to, come to, to, to the UK government uh, to match that type of funding. And I think that's going to be a, a difficult uh, challenge for the UK going forward. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Stephen. Thank you very much. So that's everything from us here on the Energy Voice stall on day two of Subsea Expo at the Press and Journal Live. Join us tomorrow for some more exclusive interviews. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.